0: Guys, uh, welcome to the Black Rifle Coffee podcast. I'm your host, Mike Glover. I don't. If you don't know me, that may be a good thing because maybe you'll see a little bit more of me. I want to say thank you to Black Rifle Coffee for the opportunity to host Michelle Black, the wife of Brian Black, a Green Beret that was killed in 3rd Special Forces Group in 2017 in Niger, Africa. We know about it, the controversies around it, and we're going to get into that and more. But I wanna say a big shout out to Black Ruffle Coffee and the guys for allowing me to host this podcast to allow Michelle access and telling her story to a broader and bigger audience. Um, if you don't know who I am, I'm the CEO and founder of Philcraft Survival in Heber City, Utah. Me and Evan grew up together in OGA and Special Forces and it's an honor to be here. And uh, uh, I-, I want you guys to hear Michelle's story because it's super important. I don't want it to be forgotten. So you've been making the rounds a little bit within the community with trusted people, uh, including Andy Stumpf, a good friend of ours, uh, on the Cleared Hot podcast, telling the story about Brian, the situation in Niger, year, and then also talking about your book, Sacrifice, which is an amazing book. It's an honor to have been able to read that book. Um, I crushed it over the last couple of days, but it's an honor to be able to Read that book and also hear your voice doing the audible version of that. That's your voice.
1: It's actually. Oh, no. it's not your voice. No, <laughs> it's
0: not. But hearing it made me emotional yeah. because it's a woman's voice, and as she's telling the story, my heart's breaking all over again um, in, in this situation. And and just to give you guys context, the reason I wanted to take this on at BRCC is because of my. Uh, Intimate knowledge and experience In working in 3rd Special Forces Group uh, In the same battalion Your husband worked in I believe he was in ACO Alpha Company Yep Um, So I grew up in 3rd Special Forces Group Was also a sergeant major In SOT Africa Special Operations Detachment Africa Which does command and control Staff uh, Planning uh, And was in the first Major attack In Niger Africa Was overseas and deployed there for Operation Flintlock when that first attack happened, which set up for rotations, including your husband's rotation in 2017. Um, For people who don't know about the story, it's been a while, can you just give some context to who you are and then uh, what the story is that happened to your husband in Niger, Africa?
1: Absolutely. So. Excuse me, I'm Michelle Black. Um, I was married to Staff Sergeant Brian Black. He was a Third Special Forces Group um, Team Sergeant, or gosh, 18 Delta Medical Sergeant, Mm -hmm. sorry, Mm -hmm. um, on an alpha company. And um, his team, ODA3212, was working in Niger, Africa, in 2017 when they were ambushed outside the village of Tongo Tongo. And that day, four um, Americans were killed: Staff Sergeant Brian Black, Staff Sergeant Dustin Wright, Sergeant LeDavid Johnson, and um, Sergeant First Class Jeremiah Johnson. Um, and from there, it just honestly it, it became completely chaotic. A uh, investigation was opened by AFRICOM. Um They began to blame CONOPS, the guys on the team, um, just pretty much everybody except leadership. And during that time, a lot of people remember there was a disputed phone call between President Trump and one of the widows that drew national media attention. And then on top of that, uh, there was a video released, an ISIS propaganda video of the deaths of three of the men, including my husband. Um, So that all played out over the course of about six months. And at the end of it, Uh, the general of all of AFRICOM stated that while the team, um, all the teams on the continent were performing optimally, my husband's team was not indicative of what special operators do. So um, they also made it clear moving forward that they were going to begin to punish uh, actual um, team members. So that's kind of where my book um, began because I couldn't handle sitting there and watching them destroy these guys um, and these guys had no one to stand up for them.
0: My understanding from the position of the book is it was an opportunity to be the voice for the detachment and the guys who had the real story from the ground perspective because they were there. And telling that story ch- channeled through your words and the circumstance of it. Is that right?
1: Yeah, by the end of everything with the media, the investigation, everything that happened, the guys weren't allowed to speak during that time until after the investigation was completed. But by the end of the investigation, they didn't know who they could trust. And honestly, being, you know, on teams, you know how that goes. Guys can't trust anybody if they speak up they're going to be punished they knew that so they were afraid they didn't want to talk to the media and so i talked to them and just said you can trust me i'll change your names um and pretty much up until i sell it to a publisher you can pull it out from under me anytime this is your story but i wanted to be able to prove um really show in the eyes of the media that these guys weren't a bunch of cowboys, that they didn't go rogue, that they were following orders. I knew um, just from discussions with them before that that's what had happened, that they were not responsible and they had not done the things that they were being accused of, but that they had no outlet, no voice. So I wanted to give voice to that.
0: Now, walk me through a little bit about why the leadership at the top, level, we're talking battalion and up leadership, including 3rd Special Forces Group, Special Operations Command Africa, and AFRICOM, the theater command, that a militant attack from an overwhelming force of terrorists, in this case ISIS militants, that ambushed your husband and his detachment, how that would fall on the hands of the tactical guys who are on the ground doing the deed, like doing the actual work. I, I don't I don't understand from a – even from an operational or an intelligence or legal perspective how that would be the case.
1: I'll be honest. When I sat down with them in a briefing room, I think they thought they could just kind of make up some – I don't know what they thought. They thought that we just weren't smart enough to figure it out, had no um, – experience with military and so we wouldn't in operations and we wouldn't really understand. Um, and I think it's easy to say, considering what you see in media, what you see in TV and movies um, you, it's easy to believe um, from civilian side that, Oh yeah, of course military guys are going to go rogue. You know, they are a bunch of cowboys out there with their weapons are just going to shoot it up. You know um, that's not the reality of guys, especially who are uh, working at that level. Um, a team members, uh, special forces. No, that's just. It's not going to happen. Um, so what they tried to tell us is that everything fell to the first con op, and that the team had decided to go rogue and chase after a terror terrorist and basically a, a HVT, high-value target, and that they were um, trying to mislead those higher up the chain so they didn't have to get approvals for going after this terrorist. But there's several pieces to that that don't make sense. Um, they had received a piece of intelligence the night before that came with a two-hour window that this terrorist was going to be up in this town called Tillawa for two hours. And um, they wanted them to go up there and just basically – check and see if he was in the area and if so then they were going to have to call for more backup and other you know another team to come in um but they wanted the team to go up there see if he was there see if he'd been there make sure to check with the civilian population kind of let them know we had a presence there in case that made them feel uncomfortable having a a, terrorist up in that area and then check with the uh there was a military unit down there as well or up there as well and so kind of do a key leader engagement so the team said that's fine but by the time we get up there it's about a five hour drive we're still going to be outside that window so then um, the leadership said okay how about this you go down and you go up there in the morning so cancel everything and this is about 11 o'clock at night Mm -hmm. and we're going to have you do the same thing but make it for the morning and we're going to send a reconnaissance vehicle with you that can kind of collect intelligence, et cetera. So we're gonna send that vehicle with you. So the guys go fine, they make it for the next morning, and by then, that that intelligence, that two-hour time window, that piece of intelligence they have, is it's cold, like it's it's not relevant mm. at all. There's no way the guy is still hanging around in the area. And even if he had been in that area and been shopping, those guys, especially the high value targets, they're gonna have several rings of people around them. So they wouldn't have encountered him more than likely anyway. Mm but anyway going up there it, they were way outside they had no information that he even was there anymore or would be there so they set it up as a civilian and military reconnaissance but that conop so when it's a mill, it doesn't desi- it doesn't require for the re- approval to go all the way up to the battalion and and group commander levels Mm -hmm. right it just needs the people back at the um, advanced operations base there they get the approvals well they had sent the order for this mission so they gave their approvals and the guys went ahead
0: um it's like a subtask of the the original concept of the the original plan that the detachment had submitted for a civ mil recce or any recce is just a subtask and they're just getting approval from at the company command level that hey we're just going to do this thing and that's what had happened I imagine
1: right so they went they went up there they did their um, whole thing they it was successful they turn around they're headed home they get stopped outside about an hour and a half outside their home base and they get told turn around we want you to go up to the Niger mali border now the guys are like this is not safe we do not want to go up there it makes no sense for us to go up there because if we run into anybody we can't capture detain them there's nothing we can do we have no backup we have no QRF we have no air support if something goes wrong and someone gets injured we don't have CASVAC either so we can't do anything with our casualties we're five hours from the closest help so they pushed back against that. And, um, they were basically being told, well, we want you to go anyway. So the commander of the team called a friend of his at team Arlet, who was a Helleborn unit and said, why don't you guys come up here and do this with us? If you're interested, the Helleborn unit commander said, absolutely. We'll be a part of it. So now they've got built in got What's a- that helle-
0: Helleborn you said? A helleborn.
1: Yeah. So a helicopter unit. Okay. And with that helicopter unit, they have, you know, um, basically a Nigerian special ops team as well. So they're really excited to get out there and, and put these guys to work.
0: So his, inter- his, his personal relationship, likely building rapport with an adjacent host nation unit, he was able to call them and get back up on his own. To be able to support him
1: right so awesome. team arlette was team three two one six also they had a Efon team which is which is connected to them which was that specialty nigerian unit so it's yeah. kind of both and so his friend on on team three two one six which was an american hel- helicopter unit um said yeah well we'll come down on our in our birds and we'll actually do the lead we'll be the lead team you guys on in the trucks can act as the qrf so now they've got a quick reaction force they've got a built-in mm. you know casualty evacuation um, unit. So they're doing good. Um, And they knew they did have one um, drone, but it was going to run out of fuel before they were headed home. So having that Helleborn unit come in was really key for them. So um, while my husband's team turned around and started heading back north, which was about a 10 hour drive with no roads. They would, they knew they'd run out of roads at some point. Right. Yeah. And the other thing with that is Americans can't cross over the military can't cross over into the Mali border, Mm -hmm. but these terrorists can slip in and out Mm -hmm. and Mali is very friendly towards, you know, terrorists. They, they, they're not going to do anything. And so it's known as kind of the wild west region. And so these guys, on the team knew if, if anything goes on, these guys just slip across the border and they're gone. And it's just, anyway, going up, there's kind of a nightmare. They didn't want to do it, but again, now they've got their Helleborn unit. They're feeling a little safer. So they start heading north. And meanwhile, the Helleborn units, you know, doing all of its video teleconferences and making all of its plan. And now that involves the third, um, the third group commander, who's Colonel Moses, and the battalion commander in Chad, um, Lieutenant Colonel David Painter. So now they're all involved in making this next con up. And then um, when my husband's team gets to the border, they it's the middle of the night and they get a call over the radio that weather has come in and now the Helleborn unit can no longer make it and they're going to have to be the only team um and so they request they say as we said before we cannot do this this is not safe we don't have a qrf this is a dangerous area we request to return to base they were told no um and so then a third CONOP was created and they were forced to head alone so um they went up they did they did that mission and the next day on their way back home is when they were ambushed and that was a whole separate piece but as far as the actual conops there were 3 and the way they justified punishing these guys is they said well that first conop that they made as a civ mill there is no doctrinal definition for a civilian military reconnaissance and therefore they were lying therefore they misled us and therefore they didn't have everything they needed when they went up there.
0: On the first mission, that was successful where there were no risk factors to the team. They said, because that's what got them into uh, the situation to be fragoed, like a fragmentation order to do other ops. That was the start point of failure is what they're saying.
1: Right, and based off of that, they completely crushed the team captain and decided that they were going to punish, yep.
0: All right, so um, listeners, for you guys uh, to understand this and follow us a little bit for for the army lingo, I'll be the translator for some of this uh, information at the company. You got the company, then you got a battalion and then you have um, any command that's in charge uh, in country, which would likely be the group running a SOTIF and they're commanded by uh, in this case, special operations command Africa. And then the theater command is commanding special operations command uh, Africa, which would in this case be Africa command. So that command has a lot, it's the umbrella organization, but it has a lot of different levels. Uh, Personally, um, I've dealt with SOCAF and AFRICOM and found them to be grossly incompetent in many ways. Uh, One, when I was in Libya doing counterterrorism operations, we had a hostage rescue situation in Algeria. They didn't even have a talk, a tactical operations center set up at night for things that happen on the most deadly continent on the planet, Africa, with all of its countries and all of its terrorists. And we had American houses in Algeria, they denied an operation and it was just a big disaster. Now this is 2012 into 13. What had changed, not much. My first rotation in Niger, Africa uh, in in Flintlock, which is a planning uh, sequence for working with host nation. So I was working with generals and commanders of the Nigerian uh, military when the terrorist attacked the southeastern town with Canadians, Norwegians, and other operators. They shut them all down and kicked them all out of country because they didn't want the controversy. Because they're like, we're not, you know, terrorism isn't a thing in Niger until it was a thing in Niger. Um, when I hear that unfold, a couple of things come to mind. And, I, and a lot of this information purposely I didn't um, look into except for the open source stuff that's been released, some of the briefings and stuff. One, when your husband and his detachment went to do this mill si- sieve recce, which is, um, by the way, a subtask of every special operations organization. You don't have to put in a con-op to do civ mill recce which mean you're you're doing operational pre- preparation of the environment it's called ope that is one of the missions of a green beret so you don't go and do foreign internal defense and not think about asking questions collecting information collecting intelligence because that would be like putting the blinders on and narrowly focused and not taking advantage of opportunity so it's it's an implied task is what we would say on the detachment so They put in a con op to do this, and they're going to link up um, to do that op that night, and then they get extended. A fragmentation order comes down, and they get extended because they want an asset attached to the team, correct? Yes. Which extends them to the next day. Guys are already on a slippery slope. When you're in or when you're behind enemy lines at any point, you're being watched. There's early warning networks the entire time. So the second con-up that comes down, which I assume comes from Battalion, um, which tells them to frago their original order, I they run, they rested overnight, I assume, and they slept out in a village or in their vehicles?
1: Well, what actually ended up happening is by the time they actually made it up to the border, um, well... The area where they were supposed to wait and then continue to the border so they were just beneath that they knew that if the helleborn unit doesn't come in then we still have a several hour movement to get up to where we need to be before sunrise so they were supposed to sleep and once that order came in that they needed to go alone to the border they now had about an hour to sleep, except with that issue, there rises another issue, right? Because you now have to kind of make a plan for what you're going to do the next morning, run quick rehearsals, and you've got a partner force team that has never been trained without sleep. And a lot of those guys are anywhere between 17 and 22. They're not, they're not seasoned, um, you know, soldiers, they're just not. And so you've got, you know, and that's, that's little rest for even these these special operators who have been trained on no sleep. So now they're doing 15 minute shifts of sleeping and, you know, pulling security. So really each guy on the team got maybe 15 minutes of sleep that night. And the guys, uh, the Nigerian partner force got maybe an hour and then they had to get up and start their movement North.
0: Wow. And and the movement North is a 10 hour movement, um, which is a long range movement, which requires man doing a 10 hour movement in open desert and open terrain um, without any air assets without support is super dangerous anywhere in the world let alone a terrorist safe haven of the border between mali and Niger, which is i mean every terrorist organization um has battle space in mali i mean it it, all the transport and all the videos you guys saw of the terrorists leaving libya and toyota land cruisers driving out they're headed to mali i mean when i was in uh, libya we had the french special operations guys uh launching um from all over the continent going to kill terrorists in mali so it's it's like the equivalent of afghan and the pakistan border if they know it's a porous border and they could just hit you and run the dangerous place to be is on that border um so you said he perizini at one point, started communicating that this is too dangerous. Yeah, how was that communication relayed? Was it relayed to battalion, and then how was it communicated to the team that they're going to continue mission?
1: So he was speaking with the Advanced Operations Base, based out of Niamey, the, the AOB. So he sent, um, you know, radio. Uh, he pulled up his radio, said, hey, you know, we, we request a return to base. Everybody at the AOB contacted Lieutenant Colonel David Painter in Chad, who was the commanding, uh, commanding officer over um, 2nd Battalion. And it was up to Lieutenant Colonel David Painter to make that decision. He said, no, that is denied. You know, you're ordered to go ahead. And so then that, got, um, that message was sent through the AOB out to the guys on the ground.
0: Do, do we know at this point? david painter's position and justification for denying
1: that request no they're they're really from i mean even after all this time i still don't know all i can do is guess i do know that at one point there was a um a hostage held in the area and I think maybe he was hoping he'd get lucky and that would look good on his for his career.
0: Was that communicated to the actual detachment at the no. time? No,
1: and that's the thing. It's in the much, you know, way off in the future, after the incident, after everything, after the investigation and he was, you know, acquitted of all wrongdoing, he came by my house and said, well, we believed, you know, there was a hostage and so I felt that we had to. So that that was something he told me But number one, not a single person on either team, not the Helleborn team or my husband's team, neither team heard anything about a hostage. And number two, it just it didn't make any sense unless it was something in the back of his mind. And he just thought maybe he'll get lucky and it'll help his career because there was no other reason to push them ahead.
0: So Dave Painter was my first team leader in Special Forces. He was my team leader in Afghanistan during a very bad rotation. And I say bad but active. A lot of Americans died. It was during Operation Red Wing. And I've always known Painter to be a very competent leader both in uh, when he was with me in Charlie Company 2nd Battalion and when we both migrated to the commanders and extremist force. Um, but I know, what I know of Dave is Dave is, Dave is aggressive. He's He's the man's, he's like one of the guys because he wants the guys to get into the fights because he's not risk adverse. So in a way, I could see the rationale behind his decision making, which is, this is what SF guys do. And, but, but I would hesitate when a team leader or a detachment is communicating to me that they need to RTB, return to base, for some specific reason. And there's a breakdown there for me because I know Painter to be a very good leader, a very good warrior, like he's a fighter. Like d- There's no hesitation in me to say that Dave is a warrior and he's the guy that you want to lead your team into combat. But at the upper levels, the upper echelons of leadership, when you're a battalion, when you're a group, you get disconnected from the guys. And so there's a huge disconnect between your priorities as a battalion commander whether it's an OER bullet, an officer evaluation bullet, or you want the guys to get in the fight, a lot of team guys would be like, oh, he's allowing us to do our job versus he's risk adverse and he's not allowing us to do our job. But if a team comes back, if, I, if I'm the company sergeant major, the battalion CSM, and one of my detachment says, hey, this is not looking good. And, and from what I understand, there was a personal SATCOM conversation between Perizzini and the command relaying and you know communicating in full his justification for the reason for the RTB did that happen?
1: Yeah he said you know yeah he went through the whole list of this doesn't make sense we're gonna run out of you know the the overhead uh, drone is gonna run out of fuel there's Basically, there's no reason we're going up here right now. We've got guys with no sleep, limited food, and uh, and he's water. dragging
0: indigenous guys behind. Him. Right, and yeah.
1: even they weren't um, excited to be there. They told him we shouldn't do this, you know, which is a huge red flag. Obviously, yeah, yeah, and yeah. so if if the if the local military is saying we shouldn't do this, then you shouldn't do that. And they'd had a lot of, and the reason why the Nigerians were worried about it is because they'd had a lot of attacks on the Nigerian units over the last year. I mean, I think there was something like five to 10 attacks. It was it was a significant amount. And every time they would kill a lot of the Nigerian soldiers that they would run into and then steal all of their um, equipment and weapons. And so they knew that this force that's out here um, that's doing this is well-equipped and well-trained. They kind of knew that at that point, but they'd never attacked Americans. And so I think there was this disconnect of, well, the somewhat idea of being infallible at that point, because they'd never connect, they'd never attacked Americans, and also, um, third group had just started working, really doing their their rotations in um, Niger right around that time, and so you had a lot of these guys who'd worked in Afghanistan, you know, and so they 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 could be that aggressive without as much concern.
0: Hey, are you guys ready for the day you've been waiting for all year? That's right, Black Rifle. Friday. America's Coffee Company is having their largest product release of the year. Over 100 new products are dropping on November 18th. So head on over to blackrifle.com and take advantage of great deals and epic new items just in time for the holidays. That's a good point. And, and it's amazing that you picked up on that point. That's exactly likely one of the variables that led to this. You had 3rd Special Forces Group at the time, which was covering down, helping 5th Special Forces Group. I mean, I was a half Asian guy speaking French in the Q course and deploying to the Middle East. Like, nothing made sense. But as we, we drew down in the Middle East, their group took back their original AO because their original area of operation was always Africa, but we weren't doing anything in Africa. It's the reason I went to French uh, Special Forces language training. So they swapped in with 10th group, because 10th Group, Maine, was taking that mission, and 10th Group went back to their original focus, which is Eastern Europe. And so when that happened, when you when you look at a guy like uh, Dave Painter and Colonel Moses, both who I know really well, I don't, I'm, I'm not friends with them, but I served with both of them, both of them came from, um, I would say, t- about 10 rotations to war um, in Iraq and focused on Afghanistan. And so that same mindset taken to the uh, Africa is not going to work. Because, in fact, my first rotation as a sergeant major doing high-level planning with the Nigerian military, some of my first assessments were one SOCAF, Special Operations Command Africa, didn't understand the battle space. The French did. You know why I knew the French took it seriously? Because they had air support co-located with their troops to be able to respond the terrorist attacks. The Nigerian military up until about 2016 never even knew what war was. When I trained them in 2015 um, and their first attack happened when I was there, they were in shock because their their soldiers, their air Force, their military have been playing war games for the last 30 years. They don't know war. the the guys who are training in the rural uh, hinterlands of of Mali, they know war, which is why the tides would be turned, which is one of the reasons why Third Special Forces Group was there in the first place, getting these guys stood up because they were getting prepared for what eventually would come, which is terrorism from Chad, Nigeria, and then Niger being in the middle of that, uh, uh, between Mali and, and Libya, being overwhelmed by that by that real estate. Um, let's walk through the circumstances where he now is being told dictated what he's going to do. And then how they got into the ambush in the first place.
1: Okay, so they basically were told that they didn't have a choice. They needed to do this mission. So then of course they they run their they kind of come up with a basic plan for the morning and sleep what little they do and then they begin to move so in the morning they go up and they're doing their basically sweeping the area looking for anybody they don't see anybody but i mean the area was covered in these trees that they have there that are um they're like umbrellas they come down to the ground and then they've got this thick brush that goes around them that has thorns and so the guys got up there they saw motocross tracks crisscrossing everywhere it obviously was a big enemy camp and they were finding items like motorcycles and weapons and and whatnot so um at one point they actually heard a motorcycle start up from behind them um two guys had pulled it out from one under, under one of the trees and then hopped on it and took off into the desert So that kind of freaked the guys out, and Captain Perizzini, knowing that their drone was going to run out of fuel, decided to send the drone to follow the motorcycle to make sure it didn't turn around and they didn't come under attack. So he sends it to follow the motorcycle. I would find out later that that drone followed the motorcycle out to um, the middle of the desert, and they ended up meeting up with several other motorcycles, and then those motorcycles went all over the place, including over the border of Mali. So... I'm assuming that's when it started.
0: So the drone actually saw that happen and that right. got communicated back to the detachment.
1: Right, well, it got communicated, I think so. I think it got communicated back to the leadership and then the leadership was communicating to down. him, okay. right. And then, um, cause they were just kind of watching it. And so then the drone was running out of fuel. So that was kind of the end of it. The drone had to go back to its base. And so the team was just kind of left out there on its own at that point. And now they've got- Zero support now. Zero support. They've got-
0: And how many guys? How many Americans?
1: um, There were 11 Americans and I think 34 Nigerians. Okay. Okay. So they began driving back. And at one point, like I said, they were running out of water and food. Um, The team members, the American team members had some. The Nigerian partner force did not have any. So they needed to pull into a local village to fill up. Um, with water and get some food supplies. And when they were there, they began to have a um, a KLE, a key leader engagement meeting with some of the villagers and uh, the, the village chief. And so the village chief became aggravated at one point, was, you know, yelling at him that they were left there, you know, no support from the Americans. He'd been arrested several times and questioned. And then he finally calmed down. And at this point, the um, team leader, Mike Perzini decided, okay, we need to get out of here. We've been here too long. I don't like the way this feels. So we're going to pack up and go. And at that point, the uh, the village chief begins to try and delay them. And that's when all the alarm bells started going off. So the team goes, nope, we're packing up. We're leaving. And as they are rolling out of the, um, the village, they actually begin to have shots start to ring out. So really it was an ambush but it wasn't necessarily they weren't there wasn't a group of terrorists lying in wait they actually began to pour in they were hoping to set up an ambush but the team didn't get delayed as much as was they were hoping to have them originally and i think that that's because um, we would later find out the village chief had the terrorist phone number saved in his phone so somebody must have called him tipped him off and they were all pouring into that village mm. and so it so, wasn't an
0: organized ambush as much it was uh, as people were arriving it was increasing the rate of fire and then the, the the volume of intensity to the team
1: right so as they pulled out, you know they they just thought that maybe one of their Nigerian, Partner forces was still getting in his truck and accidentally popped off a shot because it's an eight vehicle convoy. Yeah. So the vehicle at the front thought the guys in the back had popped off um, a shot. And yeah. which, um, is, which
0: is normal when you work with indigenous forces overseas, you, you get that. That happens often. That's not irregular. And imagine an eight vehicle convoy in the open desert is hundreds of meters long. So breaking contact is relatively easy.
1: Yeah. So, and what they did, and a lot of people, don't realize this either because it's not reported anywhere, is that there were two Nigerian trucks in the lead, right? Because Americans, when when you're going in and you're training them, they need to lead their own missions. Mm-hmm. So their trucks are in the lead, not the American trucks. Mm-hmm. So the American trucks didn't stop the convoy. It was actually the Nigerian trucks that stopped the convoy in the kill zone. So what happened is these, these shots start to pop off. There's one, then there's two, and then there's three. And so then these guys are thinking, okay, some of these villagers or somebody else thinks they're going to get lucky, kill a couple of Americans and you know, whatever. So they're laughing. well, the next thing, you know, the lead Nigerian vehicles here in the, um, The fire freak out, they slam on their brakes and they start to back up. So they back into the American vehicle, the lead American vehicle and cause a collision stopping everybody on the road. So now they're kind of trapped in what eventually becomes the kill zone. And so then the, so the first Nigerian truck backs into the American truck, another Nigerian truck backs up and then blocks it on the other side. So everybody has to get out. So it wasn't the situation which everybody heard at the time, which was the captain ordered the trucks to stop. Mm. That's not what happened. It's
0: a vehicle accident that stopped the convoy.
1: Exactly. Mm. So he got out. He said, okay, I'm going to go – see what the enemy situation is they assume still at the time maybe there's six or seven of them we'll take them down and then we'll be able to move on meanwhile you guys untangle the trucks so he gets out he takes off running and takes a nigerian partner force with him and by the time he gets over to where he's seeing um the enemy activity There's hundreds of guys pouring in. So he's just going, you know, every guy I take out, there's three more pop up in his place. This is a problem. And then he sees them begin to um, circle around towards the road where they're attempting to outflank the team, which is a huge problem. This is
0: an important detail because in the original video that was open, I assume it was um, for public release eventually because it made its way on YouTube. Uh, so it was like an open source kind of segment of the depiction of everything that happened. I believe they said for unknown reasons in the video when they d- uh, say that the convoy stopped for it was like something like for unknown reasons, the team leader stopped the convoy, etc. And now we know the truth is the indigenous host nation forces backed up into the first vehicle. there was two lead truck vehicles and I imagine, Based on what I understand of the convoy, all the Americans were buttoned up in armored land cruisers? Were they were the, the LC-200s, the, cru- the modern air land cruisers? Or were they in open-backed um, uh, heavy machine gun trucks? Do you, do
1: they you know? were there were um, gosh what were they called? They were in Toyota Hiluxes. There was yeah. one Land Cruiser, but the other, the other American vehicles, the other two were um, Hiluxes. Hiluxes, yeah. Okay. Were with,
0: they soft skin Hiluxes? Soft skin. Was the Land Cruiser soft skin as well? Yes. Okay, so basically, normal cars, normal trucks. Yeah. No more SUVs. They were fully exposed. Fully exposed. The only heavy guns in the convoy belonged on the gun trucks. Of the indigenous Nigerians, right? We
1: had we had two um, uh, two guns, two heavy guns that were actually on top of the Toyota Hiluxes. So there were okay. two, but the problem with that is then we were having issues a lot of times that they were having issues with those trucks breaking down because they couldn't handle the weight, yeah, and carry as much, um, you know, gear as many guys, and so they were yeah they they were a problem for years in that area.
0: Yeah, because it, I mean you're talking about. Desert, which is sand, and then you're talking about a Hilux, which is likely a stock Hilux, which has a low capacity of a thousand pounds, and you're loading up with a 50 cal. I imagine there's likely a 50 cal and a either a saw machine gun or a 240 on the back of that Hilux, and that payload of just the guns and the ammo would exceed the low capacity of those vehicles, the suspension, the brakes, the powertrain, and everything. Um, and those guys were bogged down in in the sand of that that desert what happens after they make initial contact as it uh, begins to evolve
1: so by the time that the captain ran back to the truck everybody said that the fire was overwhelming we'd thrown on our um you know our kits and we realized this is this is a serious attack very serious and so they are um running the machine guns one already by the time the captain got back when it already basically burned up and so that now they were down to one machine gun my husband um, Brian was shooting a uh, he had the only grenade launcher mm. and so he was having the most impact um, as far as just taking out Um, he, I guess he had actually spent a lot of time early on in the deployment, just zeroing it in so Mm -hmm. that it, it was very accurate. So he was in the back and, um, they decided, okay, we need to move to another position. But when they did that, they were having issues because the first person to run from the fight was the translator. So now they've got the issue of guys who speak, um, a variety of 20 languages and they don't know how to get them into the trucks because none of them speak the same language and their interpreter's gone. So with hand signals and whatever, they're having to pull these guys out of bushes, get them into the car. Um, so it took them a while to organize and get everybody into the cars. Then they dropped some red smoke and they decided to move out. Um, and my husband's vehicle ended up uh, staying behind. So the the lead two vehicles, um, along with any Nigerians they could get to follow them in their trucks, did a 300 bound, 300 meter bound, and then another 300 meter bound. Um, after the first 300 meter bound, they realized two trucks were, or the truck, my husband's truck, was missing, and two guys hopped out of that truck and ran back looking for him. And after the second 300 meter bound, two more guys dropped out and ran back to look for uh, my husband's truck. And by then, it was it was too late. Everybody. So you was have gone.
0: American. Uh, Both American and Nigerian vehicles displaced over 600 plus meters. You got guys on foot trying to make physical movements back on foot to pick up the rest of the guys and were displaced over an eight vehicle spread, Mm -hmm. uh, likely over a thousand meters. I mean, this is this is a a large area in open desert in the middle of a gunfight. Yeah. Um Which vehicle is your husband in? Is he in one of the Land Cruisers?
1: Yes, he was in the Land Cruiser.
0: Okay. So he's in a a standard SUV, like a normal SUV, which you fall into in country. It's like, hey, here's the keys to the SUV. Not rigged for war, but they had their stuff inside of it. But again, not a fighting vehicle. This is just a transport vehicle. Um, Where where do things start to de-evolve here? Where do things start to go really bad?
1: So what's interesting is, you know everybody a lot of people have seen the video of of that um section when the guys are killed what they didn't see was the full 45 minute video which i've been able to view and what we found out was um brian was out front leading the vehicle um basically commanding that vehicle forward and then um, dustin and jeremiah ask him what should we do next and brian basically says i think we need to stay here um, and he leads the truck into a blocking position and begins to fire his weapon to allow the other vehicles to get out.
0: So wait, this is the is this the video that was released, um, was it CBS?
1: CBS and SoftRep released it.
0: And SoftRep. So guys, if you, if you know me and my company, Fieldcraft Survival, when SoftRep released that video, because me and my former teammate who ran Fieldcraft Survival at the time, Kurt Hohan, Um, saw the release of this video and we headhunted soft rep um deservingly so because of how disgusting it was for us that an american service member ran company would put a video that literally is a terrorist propaganda video um out into the internet to allow people to watch it including i assume you saw the video when it was released
1: Uh, you know, I, I knew it was released. Um, I know my, my oldest son who's on the autism spectrum. He was 11 at the time he saw it at school. Um, I, I did not watch it. I refused to watch it up until I was writing the book.
0: Um, you and Brian had, you got two children, two boys. We do. And I assume both of those boys have watched the videos or.
1: Probably by now my youngest has seen it.
0: Yeah. Yeah yeah that's why we don't do stuff like that um it just aggravates the hell i mean just makes my blood pressure go through the roof um there's a 45 minute video this video is video perspective from both your husband and is it jeremiah
1: yeah and and the 45 minute video isn't released what yeah. Happened was the terrorists took and, and basically chopped up the original video until into what you saw on CBS their and propaganda, yeah, right. And so we've seen the full 45 minute video, which was recovered by the French. And in that, it you know, it, it was hard, but it was neat to be able to see what they were doing, um, how they were fighting. I mean, all of that was just it, it really showed the heroism. It, it was incredible, honestly. It was hard, but it, it was incredible, and it, it was so. Amazing to see the way the guys were working together up until they were killed. So yeah. I,
0: I, I, I got chills all over my body. And I was just recently talking to somebody cause they knew I was going to interview you and we were talking about the video and everything. And despite the pain that the video has brought in terrorizing these families, including your own, it, it is an incredible depiction of the heroism and bravery of both your husband and the men on the ground that work the problem till the end. Green Berets, special operations guys, work problems. Yeah, that that's what they're good at. And to see those men working problems until they couldn't work problems anymore, it gives me chills because it, it it's it's horrible and it's tragic. But it's also it's also something that's like, man, that's what these guys did, and that's what they did to the very end, and they fought. Yeah. And if if they were going to perish in combat, because I know a lot of guys and friends of my own in third group, my son is named after a third group teammate who was (laughs) killed in combat, two of them, um, that they would want to have gone out like that, fighting for each other to the very end. Now, the 45-minute video depicts, I assume, um, them trying to establish a dominant firing position to turn the tides of their circumstance um why did i mean besides the overwhelming force that your husband and their detachment had to go against what were the issues that you saw on the reasons that um, they weren't able to break contact or weren't able to get through that was it just sheer numbers alone
1: i think it was sheer numbers but i think also there were a lot of just i mean the weaponry of the enemy was insane we're talking mortars we're talking we're talking uh, ZPUs right anti aircraft weaponry and my husband's team they weren't prepared for that i mean like i said they were out on a one day sieve mill, pretty basic recon mission so they weren't loaded down with a ton of weaponry i mean like i said the the uh, machine guns and um, my husband's grenade launcher was really their their heavy machinery. I mean that that's what they had other than their their standard weapons. So they, they weren't prepared for a fight like this and it, it was very overwhelming and their partner force wasn't trained to do that kind of um of fighting at all. And so really when you're looking at it my husband's team had been in country five weeks so they really hadn't had time to train their force and they'd had um a camera crew there, National Geographic, was also filming um, a chain of command series while they were first in country. So really, they had only had maybe three weeks to train their Nigerian partner force. They, they weren't trained for this. So most of them were attempting to run from the battle or, or fighting the best they knew how. But really, when it comes right down to it, it, it was more 11 guys against probably around 150.
0: Is that what they predict is about 150 guys? Yeah. Yeah, for, for the audience who doesn't know what like a Zuki or, or a ZPU is, um, it's pedal fired. It's a 14.5 millimeter anti-aircraft gun. I used to shoot it in my firebase at ridgelines five kilometers away. You're talking about a weapon system that will cut vehicles and people in half. And they had overwhelming fire superiority in that gunfight. I mean, an M4, uh, a 556 gun is like a 22 you know compared to a a a 12 gauge i mean there's just no comparison um for for them to overwhelm and especially in a force of 150 militants 150 bad guys so we we have this video that was released we have all this circumstance that's going on downrange. how do you find out about any of this how does how does this start to evolve for you personally
1: well um, as far as the
0: video and, no, I mean, for you personally, and notification, and then you get wind of things happening because I yeah. I remember it hitting the headline of news, yeah, pretty early, yeah, pretty which is which is not common, but pretty early before I knew every family member from what I heard was even notified.
1: The whole thing happened way too fast, yeah. and because I I don't know if it's because National Geographic had been there filming or if there there was already. Media on the ground because of the the um, American hostage. I mean, I don't know, but somehow media got wind of it right away, and so there was a news flash that came across my mother-in-law's phone. So she called me and said, "It must have been eight o'clock at night um, on." I don't know what day it was, but October 4th, maybe a Wednesday. And she goes, Hey, did you see this news flash about a, you know, team, an American green beret team up near the Mali border that was attacked. And I knew Brian was on a mission in that region. And there aren't that many teams in that region, really. There might've been three teams in country at that time. And so I knew instantly, I said, that's Brian's team, Brian's dead." Um, and you, you, you I knew, knew that immediately. I knew
0: how long, how long is this? um thought after the actual event took place how many hours
1: not many i'd, I'd had that feeling early in the morning and i I'd, I'd i'd been worried about this deployment i don't i'm not a worrier i'd never worried about a deployment honestly it was like see you later see you in a few months whatever um have fun this was the first deployment where i was i just had a gut feeling and i've always had those when things go wrong i just i know and so that morning, um, it was probably around, I want to say 10 or 11 a.m., so probably right when it happened, I was walking across my bedroom, and I just, I just, I, yeah, it was like, and this happened to me once when my dad died, it just, like all of a sudden, the spirit of God was around me. hit you. <laughs> yeah, and it was like, you know, don't worry, you're gonna be okay. Everything's gonna be okay. And I knew that meant someone was gonna be dead, or was dead, and I didn't know, I figured it was me or Brian. And so then it was figuring out in my head, like, what's better for the kids? Is it better for the kids if I die or if Brian dies and he's deployed? So if I die, that's going to be really scary for them. But
0: you're thinking through this before you're even communicating to anybody about the notification of what took place.
1: Yeah, you're this this, this you're- was 11 in the morning. Wow. And then by the time she called at eight o'clock at night, I already knew I'd been avoiding talking to her and it just came out. And then I thought, oh, gosh, okay, I can't really take that back. So I just said, I'm sorry, we don't know that yet. But at that point I was, I just went down, sat on my steps and waited for the uh, guys to come. And I heard them pull up.
0: How long after that did they pull up?
1: About two hours, I think, wow. 10 o'clock.
0: So this is happening rapidly. This very, is happening super fast. Very. Um, I've been part of that notification process uh, in third group. And it is the hardest thing I've ever had to do or be part of in my career. Um, When this happens, do the family members of those Green Berets, that team, start coming together? Or do you guys start consolidating?
1: Oh yeah, all of his team, um, the wives, um, the team members from the year before, who weren't in country with him that year, the ones who had retired or had just moved into other on um, to other teams or other positions, they all started showing up um, within 24 hours. So, and as soon as the other team members got home, because um, they were sent directly home after the incident, so then they all began showing up. So it was quick.
0: Um, after this attack happens and they're picking up the pieces, trying to figure out what happened. There were, there was a period of time where one of the members of the team wasn't accounted for. Um, who was that and what was the circumstance behind that?
1: Sergeant David Johnson was missing, which was probably, it was weird that it was the hardest thing for me. I, for me, Brian and I, you know, we're we're in our 30s, we're in our mid to late 30s, and we had kids, we were, you know, for me, we were, we'd lived our lives. And I knew Brian, and so the minute the whole thing happened, I knew, okay, he did something to defend somebody, to protect something, just knowing how he was. He was brilliant you know master of chess and very very calculating so I knew whatever happened he'd made a calculated decision that got him killed and he knew he knew what he risked and you know he's lived his life and I can I can be at peace with that because he died on his own terms but um, I knew how he would have felt about Le David Le David was 25 his wife was pregnant they had two tiny little kids and it just it wasn't okay Um, The David was missing and we didn't know anything at first. We just knew he was missing. And I think all of us were a wreck because we knew that the team had requested he return with them. He was their support mechanic and they wanted him to become a team member. He was a great guy. And um, so he wasn't originally supposed to be there. And so when he went missing, it was the closest to feeling true terror I had felt um, at that point in my life and so he went yeah he was missing for a couple days we found out later that when um they had gotten to the second position and the team couldn't find my husband's uh, truck they stayed there for a while and continued to shoot Um, but the full force hadn't come around yet they were focused in on brian's truck and um, once brian jeremiah and dustin were dead then the whole group of terrorists circled around and then came back at the whole team full force at their their next position. And that's when things just went completely haywire and all the trucks decided, okay, we need to take off. There's a small wooded marshy area. We're going to take off into that area. So they all just ran for their trucks and hopped in them and took off. Well, in the chaos, the David, um, they don't really know why or what happened. Either the truck didn't start. He never got to the truck. They don't know. And, um, the problem is that the truck that the guys the first group took off in was one of the gun trucks it had one of the machine guns sitting on top and the way they built that um it blocks all view f- from behind so forget your rearview mirror it's not going to make a difference you won't notice what's going on behind you so everybody jumped in the back into that truck and then you know all the nigerians piled in and then mike actually the captain jumped in but he got shot and was thrown from the truck so in all of this chaos they didn't realize that Le David wasn't behind him because they couldn't see he was missing. When they turned their truck around, they realized because they heard that Mike got shot and fell out. So they turn around to see if they can go get the captain. And that's when they realize Le David's truck isn't following them. So what ended up happening is Le David jumped or didn't get to his truck. They're not really sure. And he took off running along with several other of the Nigerian partner force. Um, trying to escape the onslaught, and he found a tree, jumped underneath this thorny tree, and again, it was one of those big trees that's kind of like an umbrella. It's thorny, and goes all the way to the ground. And he took up a fighting position there. And um, when they found him later, there were several piles of brass. It looks like he fought from several different positions, probably killed a few people. And then eventually they pulled up one of their um, large uh, trucks and unloaded a machine gun on him of some sort, and uh, that was, he was missing for a few days because he was about a mile from where the team was recovered. Wow, wow,
0: yeah, I heard about some of the details of his last moments of, and it was depicted that it, it was him fighting to the very end. Yeah. Um, um, what I heard when this had happened, because I was cl- I'm close to third special forces group, um one of the guys kevin owens who grew up with me in third special forces group Um, we are teammates but he's my training director for fieldcraft survival we started communicating back and forth about what was going on Uh, i I always as somebody who who spent a lifetime almost in the regiment i always want to figure out like hey what's what's the problems what happened so we don't make the mistake in the future and one of the first things that i heard was they started blaming the detachment immediately. And something that didn't make sense to me, which I want your opinion on, is immediately they said, well, the team wasn't trained. And they said there was this full mission profile, which is an FMP. There's this pre-train-up thing you do every rotation prior to going to a J-set or combat where you have to check the block as a prerequisite on these specific things. And they're common core tasks. You know, it's like react to contact, battle drills, first aid and trauma, whatever it is, but you check the block, and that they hadn't checked that block, so that's the reason why this happened. And I, the media jumped on the bandwagon of that and started directing the blame, but all the guys in the community, all the guys that I knew from the regiment were saying, that's ridiculous. Like, no, one, that's a check the block series. Mm-hmm. Teams aren't defined by their three weeks at NTC, the National Training Center, doing battle drills. They're defined by the leadership and the guys on the detachment. From what I saw from even the video of, of your husband fighting to the very end, these guys were competent Green Berets doing what they did best, fighting in combat to the very end. There were bigger issues that were at the battalion, at the group, um, even at the SOCAF and AFRICOM command that, that were play, players or variables here. What is your opinion of 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 all that because I assume that's part of the your investigation as you started questioning the guys?
1: Yeah, and I, you know I think it's it's you could answer that even with a question. If they'd received all that you know check the box training, would it have ended differently? No. Not at all. I mean, these guys, you know, they go through not just, you know, basic and AIT, right? That's that's the standard training for the military. But we're talking years. how many years more, you know? And most of these guys had ranger tabs as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I know my husband did and at least three other guys. One of the guys had been ranger regiment for years. They were all seasoned um not just on tactics and training, and they drilled and drilled and drilled, but also many of them had been in combat multiple times. So it's ridiculous to say that they didn't check that box in training. The second part of that is, um, you know, everybody who needed to and was now, well, everybody who was now blaming them for not having done the correct training was um, actually responsible to check the box and validate that training right exactly so the very person who validated that training was now blaming everybody else and he you know that was lieutenant colonel painter it was his job to validate all the pre-deployment training but not only that, he allowed that blame to fall on Major Alan Van San, who wasn't even in the position and did not have the authority to validate he wasn't even training. He was in the
0: country at the time, right? His, wasn't
1: he? he, he not, yeah, he was on paternity leave when the incident happened. When the training happened, he wasn't in his position. This
0: is the company commander of Alpha Company second right. time. Right. Yep.
1: So he had no. Like responsibility for anything, not the training, not the mission, nothing. He became the fall guy for everything and lost his career over it. And there's no, no reason whatsoever that they give that's justified. Um, it's just he didn't do the right training, and he was responsible for validating it. But according to the Army rules and regs, he didn't have the ability or the authority to validate any training, and he wasn't in a position to train them at that time. He wasn't present. And so there were so many holes with that, but also Lieutenant Colonel David Painter, he was the one who was responsible for validating all the training. He also, along with Colonel Moses, was responsible for making what training they did before they deployed. So it would have been him who put together all of their pre-deployment training. Because it's dictated. It's right. not,
0: you, don't, you don't offer up what you're going to do. The battalion often comes down from the guidance from the group command on the prerequisites based on the deployment cycle, which is what we call the playbook in special operations, based on the playbook, they're going to dictate the metal or the J-metal task, the mission essential task list that you're going to execute, and you just check the block because you're given that. So the, the idea that these guys didn't do the training, that no detachment on the history of the planet in any company in, in special forces would ever dictate what they're going to do or not do, They're dictated from a higher chain of command.
1: Right. right? So if that's the big issue, then why, once again, was Lieutenant Colonel Painter never held accountable? And why was Colonel Moses never held accountable? I mean, by now they have been, but by Congress, right? So, but, and and Lieutenant Colonel Painter, as far as I know, he is still in the military. Hmm. So I think he's just kind of biding his time from what I've heard, hoping people forget but plain and simple, like he was responsible for all of it. And they decided instead of having them do their normal training, they sent them, they didn't want to do Jade Helm because they knew the team had to go to Jade Helm, but they didn't want to do Jade Helm and also have to do the pre-deployment training. So they decided to just forego the pre-deployment training and call Jade Helm their pre-deployment training training. And Jade Helm is an unconventional warfare exercise. It's not training. So it, basically i don't know if you'd call it laziness or what but basically it was uh, lieutenant colonel david painter and moses who chose not to do the pre-deployment training and then allowed those beneath them to be punished for that
0: what's your opinion after uh, accumulating all the conversations and the information and making your best assessment of what went wrong where do you think special operations command africa which is the um you know a group would be the subordinate command under Special Operations Command Africa. I've actually been in that position, which is very difficult, where you're trying to do operations, you're setting up CONOPS, you're getting denied, you're going through multiple layers. It's very difficult to be a team guy on the continent and communicate to Stuttgart Germany and other higher echelons of command because of all the bureaucracy that's involved. Where does SOCAF or Special Operations Command Africa and AFRICOM where do they fall in line for uh the things they did wrong or if any
1: well you know i i think there's a lot that's a very complicated question but you know there's a lot of things right assets and country what these guys are driving there's so many things like the vehicles were an issue not just that deployment they were issue. there were an issue for years that had been um the guys had been reporting on been complaining about and oddly enough the minute this happened and it turned into as big of a deal as it did a big public debacle then suddenly it's hey well, we'll we're going to get these guys all the trucks they need well, that's great, but by now we've we've lost lives. And we'd lost lives before then. I mean, in February, I believe that year, Sean Thomas was killed. Mm-hmm. I think it was February. Um, and it, same thing. It was a vehicle and lack of assets, right? So everybody knew the vehicles were a problem. We'd get stuck. The guys would get stuck um, all the time. I mean, they couldn't carry the amount of equipment they need. So, so there was that. There was also the lack of assets in country in general. There are a lot of things in that respect that... Are they, they fall on SOC Africa? They fall on Africom because it's it's those two entities that would get um, those things for the guys on the ground, right? They'd make sure that they have those things. It's their responsibility to make sure that all the guys there um, operating on that continent have what they need to be able to operate at the best level.
0: Mm. I can't. Th- there's not too many situations I could. Point to in my military experience of where the blame would be diverted at the team level. Usually, in chains of command, the chain of command is the one who bears the responsibility, not the guys on the ground. The fact that that's what was very different, I think, for me and and the and the guys that I know in special operations who understood this. That rarely does the guy on the ground get blamed for you know, fighting through difficult circumstances and dying side by side. I mean, the captain of that team was got shot during this and lost members of his team. The team sergeant who was on the ground uh, was in a situation where they were fighting through these difficult circumstances and they got the blame. So who got the blame in this? Whose careers were ruined because of this that took place from the, the lack of leadership from the battalion level?
1: So, I mean, obviously, Alan Van Sant, he, he probably received the biggest brunt of the um, punishment. Because, Company commander. Right. Yeah. And he was the one who was on paternity leave when this happened. Mm-hmm. So he received his, um, go more, his general officer, um uh, yeah, memorandum off. of reprimand right yeah. so he received that reprimand and that ended his career it was a career ending gomor yeah so he had to get out um the next one was going to be captain Perizzini, and he received he ended up receiving two gomors he received the first one got it got rescinded because we all wrote letters even the family members my me my father-in-law we were writing letters saying hey this isn't okay you need to rescind this and then when it didn't look like it was going to be rescinded, my father-in-law actually got his letter published publicly. And so then his um, letter was, uh, Gomor was rescinded. But then in the second round of punishments, because there was a whole review and then a second round of punishments came through. And once again, Captain Perizzini was given a Gomor, um, And so once again, he fought it and it got rescinded, but that permanently tarnished him, yeah. you know, because then everybody goes, Oh, well, you know, he's the guy who caused the Niger ambush because it's, and, and yeah, I think a lot of team guys are like, Hey, you know, this shouldn't fall on the team, but the people who are approving the, any sort of promotion, right. Who's going to put Mike on a promotion board or see him on a promotion board and make those decisions Well, they're believing whatever the command is saying. So they're not in a hurry to promote him. So here we are five years later, and Mike is appealing to, you know, Senate uh, the Armed Services Committee to try and get a promotion after five years.
0: After five years as a captain. Yes. Yeah, he should have been a major. Long time ago. Long time ago, two years ago. Right. right. Um, oh man. Um, Let's talk about your journey because this is, we're five years post one of the most, the most traumatic thing that you've ever experienced in your lifetime. And you've dealt with a lot. You've you've composed this book to tell the story. How are you?
1: How are you doing right now? I'm doing really good, actually. Um, yeah, you know, it's I funny. You, you always you always assess yourself. Yeah. do I really mean that? Yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's uh, times when I'm doing really well and there's times that I'm not doing really well. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, you're, you're raising your kids and you lost your entire future because when you know <sighs> I I don't know, I think for me it was hard because Brian was the only person I ever wanted to actually date or be around. (laughs) So once we got married, it was like, oh, well, this is it forever, you know? And so now it's like, now our kids are growing up and they're getting ready to leave and you just go, oh my gosh, now it's, you you do that whole thing of like, it's like I'm back being 20 again, where it's like, you know, who am I? But um, but I think, you know, what has happened, What happened to him, what happened to our family? I can't, how do I put this? It's like I have a responsibility. He bought a lot of opportunities for me with his life. And I can't just um, become too self um, focused and worry about myself or what, you know, how I feel or whatever, like life is hard, you know, but that's, that's just part of it. And how many people end up having opportunities to fight back and do something that could possibly change the world or ch- make the world better for people. Um, and what I'm hoping to do moving forward is to not just, I mean, it, this book has been a good catalyst but I'd like to um, kind of complete what I started and and really make a difference for the guys operating on the ground. Mm-hmm. So I'm working right now on starting up a 501C3, which I'm hoping to at some point transition to 501C4, which will be focused on advocating for um, active duty soldiers and um, their families, as well as Gold Star families. I th- I think I think there are a lot of people advocating for veterans issues and i think that's great and i think there's a lot of people advocating for gold star issues and that's great but one thing i discovered as i was going through all of this is that these guys have no one fighting for them a lot of times and that's not okay so my first order of business is to change the way military investigations are done and then we'll move from there
0: that's super interesting because um you're absolutely right. Nobody's an advocate for the guys, especially on teams, or the guys who are in those situations because higher echelons of command put them in those situations. And they're typically ostracized, r- careers ruined, and forgotten about. Yeah. Um, I- I've been, I-, I tell the story on Phil Cross Survival's podcast of uh, when I was put under a uh, investigation, 15-6 investigation, a formal investigation, for the misuse of classified information when me and my warrant sent a template, so an actual just template PowerPoint presentation that had the word uh, secret on it. And the whole point was we were using the template to stand up our guys and and to fill in the template with fake information, but the word secret was on the fake template, and they had to do a six month investigation threatening to ruin our careers. Nothing was found wrong, but it took six months And we were guilty until proven innocent. And often the guys in these situations, their careers are all they have. I mean, their professions, mostly committed to about 10 years or more because that's how long uh, most of these guys go through training, uh, have prior military experience in the army, that they've put all their eggs in one basket. And then when it comes to their advocacy, they're talking to a judge advocate in the group that's fighting for the political machine, the bureaucracy, and making sure they're protecting the leaders or the officers that are in charge as opposed to the guys on the ground. Yep. And that, that would be amazing help, especially because um, I don't think anything for, like that exists in the military or, no. or in, in a nonprofit, right?
1: No, not that I've seen so and and it's it's more than overdue. There are so many antiquated systems within our military that need to be updated. Like you said, it's it's innocent until proven guilty. And that goes against everything in our country. But also, I mean, you guys are giving your lives for our freedom, for our country, for, you know, justice and and the law, which you guys don't even fall under the same fair laws the rest of the world does. So that's not okay. So, so, you know, and, and that's, that's really what got me so fired up right after Brian was killed and all of the lies kind of just became so public is, you know what, Brian's already dead. I can't fix that. I can't bring him back. But I can fix what happened to the guys on the team. I can fight for them. And, you know, who else is going to do it? There is no one. So, you know.
0: That's amazing. Hopefully, BRCC Fund and some of the guys that I know could um – help you out with that. I'd love to help you out with that because it's so needed. And you yeah. learned this over the course of years and investigating it yourself, yeah. being the advocate and voice for these men who don't have that. I mean, they've yeah. been put under gag orders or if they say one thing, they'll be ostracized and legally gone after even more uh, under UCMJ. Yeah. Um, let's talk about Brian. Okay. Um, chess master. <laughs> Was he a, was he a, was he an avid uh, chess player?
1: He was he was a total dork. Was he? Uh yeah. <laughs> That's awesome.
0: Usually you see 18 Delta, right? Yeah. Most 18 Deltas are dorks. They're, yeah. they're they're so weird but they're the best dudes at what they do but often the most intelligent of the special operations guys. I mean, I wanted to be an 18 Delta until I realized I could never be one because the academics that were involved. What what how did you meet Brian and then how did you guys get into a career where he was going to become a Green Beret?
1: So I was actually, I was taking some time off college to work in a ski town. I was obsessed with snowboarding pretty much my whole life. I did a little competing, did a little instructing. So I was, it was just, it was so much fun. You know, you hang out with kids all day and teach them to snowboard and then afterwards you go spend the rest of the day going through the park and playing around so um, I was obsessed and so I was up there doing that and Brian showed up to church one night and I was like oh gosh he was this dork in a sweater I mean literally he was, <laughs> was just... it a turtleneck? Hopefully it wasn't a turtleneck No but it was like it was like a crew neck sweater I mean nobody wore that you know we were all really cool um, you know with our puffy jackets and saggy pants and Brian was in tight jeans with a crew neck and looked like he'd been in a fight he was 6'2 probably 220 at the time just so wow solid muscle. Yeah. And, um, so I said, hi, and the, the guy just, he had a deep monotone was very, um, I, I don't know. I couldn't figure out if he was dumb or really smart and just quiet and to the point. And that's kind of what I learned about him over the years was that he was just as few words as possible, but brilliant. Um, I always say he kept me around for entertainment, but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we had a good time. So, um, we got married, uh, gosh, that was 2003, I want to say, when we met. We got married in the summer of 2005, had a couple kids, and the um, he was playing online poker for a living. So wow. yeah, when we met, he was playing online poker and uh, making a lot of money. So he managed to take care of me and the family doing that. But uh, then when Obama came into office, he began to change banking laws so that you could no longer move money from um, the standard American banks into uh, onto poker sites. It became really hard. So you'd have to move them into offshore accounts Mm. and then bring them in. And that was really sketchy. So Brian ended up pulling his money out and. um, went to look for work, but 2008 hit, it was a recession, he couldn't get work. So he'd always wanted to be a Green Beret, Navy SEAL, whatever. So he just asked me, do you care if I do this? And I was like, listen, you're the guy working. We had a crazy on the spectrum kid who was going wild. I was like, you know, can't be both of us. And I didn't want to leave him alone with Zeke because they, they just butted heads. They were both very strong willed. So, um, I was like, oh, if you're going to take care of the family, then do whatever you want, that'll make you happy. So, um, he went to basic now that kind of led us into special forces eventually. I mean, within the first year of him being, um, uh, we, we were stationed out of Fort Carson and he was in a cash combat support hospital mm. and he was bored out of his mind. He was already starting side businesses. So he asked if I cared if he went to SFAS and it was like, if that will keep you busy and happy, do it. So he went off to special forces selection and no surprise was selected. And, and, uh, we were on that track pretty quick. That's awesome. So.
0: That's amazing. And, and Brian, um, I noticed it. From all the things that I've heard from all the men, and how they were fighting for each other, he was a fighter. He was a warrior. Um, and when you see, it, when I found out that the guy in the video was the medic, who and it was Brian, I was amazed by that because when you when you know medics, like medics' priority um, is dominating in security, fire superiority before they start treating casualties, and those men on the ground were fighting for each other and you could tell that was he a fighter was he somebody that you always recognize as like this is who he is
1: oh yeah brian um well like i said when i first met him he was big he was really into jiu-jitsu and mma he actually was uh he told me he was a cage fighter i didn't know what that meant i was like i don't know why you're telling me that to impress me but it Mm -hmm. doesn't um, I found out later what it was and I was like, Oh, okay. That's pretty impressive. So yeah, he, he enjoyed fighting. He thought it was fun just tossing people around and, um, and he was really skilled. So I know he was hoping he'd eventually come in close contact with the enemy and do a little hand to hand combat with them. He had a, a an ax sharpened, mm-hmm. um, and lots of knives to grab. So, um, yeah, he was a fighter.
0: How are the wives of the other men doing from that detachment? Um, I mean, there was a lot of life lost that day. Was it five or six Nigerians and four Americans? The yeah. most since Mogadishu, Somalia, mm-hmm. in one in one take. How are they doing?
1: The widows or the or the, the widows? What? Um, you know, I, I think it's hard because I think we. You wanna you wanna sometimes forget. You wanna um, you wanna just try and ignore it and not deal with the pain and, um, separate. So it's hard to, it's hard to get in contact with them. I don't really know how they're doing. Um, me, I tend to take things head on and, and want to like fight it out. So, um, but yeah, it's, I don't know. Sometimes you need a little bit of let them have their space and I, I send them messages here and there, but, um, yeah, it's hard.
0: Yeah. I've noticed that about most wives of the buddies, that I served with that were killed in combat, they tend to insulate and kind of just get away from whether it's Fort Bragg or Fayetteville or the community, the everything that reminds them of the mm-hmm. ones they have lost. You, are you still in Fayetteville? Did you did you stick around or did you?
1: No, we no. moved to uh, Puyallup. That's where Brian's family is, mm. and um, Brian was planning on retiring in two years, and he wanted to move the boys to Puyallup and raise them near his parents. So when he was killed, I was like, that just that makes sense. Yeah. Um, take him there, um, and and raise them the way he would have wanted them to be raised. So.
0: Tell me the objective of sacrifice, your book, and how that whole journey got started, um, and and how did you end up here? I mean, post writing the book and the experience, how has that been for you?
1: It's been a whirlwind. Honestly, I didn't think sacrifice would turn into what it turned into. Mm -hmm. When I first started writing it, it was more the fact that I needed to prove these guys were innocent and that the guys who died weren't – I needed to make sure they weren't dishonored. And so the minute everything happened and it was clear the guys were going to be blamed, and I sat down with them and I promised them that I would – Um, tell their story, and I would do it right, and I would honor them, and they trusted me um, exclusively. That's when it kind of became this, not burden, but something I, I had to walk out all the way and make sure that I, you know, in a sense, shout it from the rooftops until everybody knows these guys, knows their stories, and I'd love it to see uh, I'd love to see the team get the, um, awards they deserve. I mean, every single guy who survived that day also earned, you know, silver stars and, but they all got demoted or they're downgraded, um, to our comms, which is disgusting. And so they
0: got demoted from silver stars to army commendation medals. Yes. That is disgusting.
1: Yeah. And they all deserve, much higher
0: uh what about your husband was he awarded he was
1: he was posthumously awarded a bronze star with a v device for valor and yeah and we've written and written and written he should have
0: been awarded the medal of honor like i mean it's it's incredibly disgusting to me how the army award system works especially for those that sacrifice themselves or fight for each other in valorous ways when it deals with Political issues, yeah, and that's what it, that's what it. I mean, I got an Army commendation award for getting a three hundred on my physical training um, yeah. PT score, yeah. and it's disgusting that that would even be a, an, an award they they will award when all those guys deserve to be awarded for what they did. They don't yeah. want those awards. They won't no. tell you they want those awards, but it, it's especially for your husband posthumously fighting to the very end, Bronze Star with Valor. I mean, there's guys who get service awards bronze stars with v devices for just deploying and being in a gunfight yeah and and oh that drives me crazy sorry yeah
1: no that's okay i feel the same way but i i I was telling my in-laws the other day i said it's good because it's it's good that they keep playing it political because it keeps me angry and as long as i'm still angry about something i'll just keep taking the fight to them so um keep hitting that yeah (laughs) no that's
0: that's that's what we need and it's and it's it's amazing to see the intestinal fortitude that you have this many years post that circumstance to continue to fight, to continue to communicate. And, and if it wasn't you, it wouldn't be anybody else, by the way, because nobody's fighting for the guys. The guys barely want to fight for themselves yeah. because they don't want to be ridiculed and made fun of by uh, the quiet professionals that exist in special operations. But if you don't do it, then nobody else is going to do it and and it's amazing to see michelle it's it's amazing to see what what drives you nowadays
1: um i think all of that every time i because i i keep in communication with the guys on the team and i see their humility i see the fact that anytime i fight for anything for them they're like you've done too much for us like you know thank you but you know um, and that, to me, so that's really what drives me. That and my kids. I see my kids, and I see everything they've been through, and the fact that um, really a lot of these military leaders were more concerned with um, preserving the uh, the um, careers of certain officers over doing what was right by my family, especially after everything my kids went through and Jeremiah's kids went through, and and the david's kids you know there were a lot of kids involved a lot of kids that have had to deal with this um video that have had to deal with losing their dads and that's enough to just keep me um motivated
0: any uh last thoughts
1: um gosh so many (laughs) no i uh i don't know i just um i know you were asking you know what uh what keeps me, not what keeps me going, but what's happened over the last several years. And, you know, I think I I was going to say that originally I had planned on just self publishing. I didn't think this book would ever make it this far. Um, and so I, I think I'm blown away every time somebody reads it and, and wants to give me a space to speak. Um, and uh, tells me their feedback, which is, you know, they're blown away by the book. um, Because I'd never written a thing in my life before the day I wrote this book. So um, I'm just really grateful for all of the incredible people who have had faith in me and supported me um, doing this. Yeah.
0: Um, Well, I just want to say thank you for sharing your story with me today. Um, I didn't realize how close I was involved as far as like, understanding key players and, and service in their group and um it's an amazing book um it's it's told humbly but it's also told told pointedly taking up for the guys who can't at this point take up for themselves uh it's a must read for people who are li- who are listening to this podcast and i hope to spread this message um to read the book to get more involved to follow your path because I think it's important again I don't know of any organization uh, any one individual that takes up for the guys and their circumstances because they're the ones left out the dry and also putting themselves in harm's way and if it has to be you um, a wife of a fallen green beret then so be it that's the mission that's something you've accepted let's just do as much as we can to help in any way that we can um, okay. thank you for sharing your story with me today
1: thank you so much for having me
0: yeah Yeah. guys black rifle coffee company uh see all the notes below this is an important mission an important message i don't want to politicize this what i do is i want to get michelle on as many podcasts that have big audiences as possible if you share the links if you share the story i I don't care if it's word of mouth do so because we need to take up for these guys especially the guys who are no longer here um defend and fight for themselves who have sacrificed it all Um, thank you so much to Michelle, thank you so much to Black Rifle Coffee, we'll see you guys next time.
1: That concludes today's training. Any questions?
0: Woo! Drum titties, boy!